0: it's so scary not to it is absolutely terrifying and it doesn't matter how many times you take the big next leap every time you go to take the big next leap at your big next level it's the same level of fear comes up and fundamentally we're wired if we actually even look at the neuropsychology of it and the way in which we're wired we're wired to stay where it feels safe. And so our body sends off alarm systems, the amygdala goes into fight and flight mode and sends us messages, don't do
1: this. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns.
2: On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a woman who lives and breathes personal leadership, overcome addiction and social anxiety, delivers breakthroughs, smashes through glass ceilings, and is the founder of SHE, Australia's largest women's leadership and empowerment event. She is a highly regarded leadership coach, sought-after speaker, who is known for her down-to-earth teachings and no BS approach to getting results. Rising from depression, bulimia, anorexia, and drug use, she has thrown everything into gaining her life back and making a positive difference to many people's lives. She has served as a clinical nurse educator in New Zealand, curated two phenomenal conferences, She and Game Changer Global Summit, and collaborates with worldwide personal transformation leaders such as Jack Canfield and Brendan Bouchard. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a visionary performance leader who tells it as it is, loves playing it big, empowers women to take charge of their life and is living life to her fullest with a beautiful family in Bali. Kate Marie O'Brien. Kate, welcome to the show.
0: Mm, thank you so much for having me.
2: Uh, I'm really excited to dive into your world of personal transformation and empowering people to take control of their life. But before we do that, let's take a step back in time. You know what was life like for you growing up in New Zealand as a child? And, you know, which part of New Zealand did you start in?
0: Oh I grew up in Hawke's Bay in New Zealand uh, growing up we lived on we lived on an orchard and I saw my parents come up against adversity unexpectedly many times and what I saw was two people who absolutely freaking well never gave up and they became every time something hit resourceful creative innovative and just Dog determined to absolutely not have whatever that came up take them take them out of the game I remember one year, you know, we were living on an orchard and the, the basically the entire crop was ruined um, two years in a row and they f- Managed to not lose everything when many people did that year, but it was because of who they were being and the ways in which they kept looking for solutions and looking for loopholes and looking for things. You know, Mum, I remember seeing her going through pig buckets to search through and find the best pieces of um, vegetables and fruit that she would put in her plastic bag and bring home and wash off and feed to the family because that was the way in which they were able to put food on the table in the most um, painful times when they just you know, could have easily lost everything. And I learned a lot through having parents like that, that a lot of, you know, in our entrepreneurial journeys, we come up against things. And we come up against obstacles at the next level. And it's not necessarily about always knowing the answer, but it's really being the kind of person who, when you come up against any obstacle, that you're not going to fold you're not gonna have it take you out and run in the opposite direction. You just have a really big context for being at, knowing that this is just another part of the journey and that those obstacles, they grow us. They force us to become bigger than what we would've if we didn't face it. So um, that's probably the little piece that I wanted to share about my growing up.
2: It's not about resources. It's about being resourceful. And you know, that's obviously a big lesson to learn at such, such a young age. You know, for you, did you have a big vision on what you wanted to do in life? Or were you confused and unsure like many teenagers?
0: Uh, Confused and unsure. I mean, I suppose on the flip side of talking about how my parents were super determined on the flip side of that, they were also having the impact in some ways, you know, dad was drinking and uh, that had a huge impact. And so I suppose in my late teens, as a result of, you know, things, I ended up, that's when I ended up with the anorexia and the depression and the drug addiction, with which what you talked about. So, But I think that's kind of the the journey that we go through, right? On one hand, our experiences give us certain perspectives and strengths. And then on the other hand, often they give us these things that we have to overcome within ourselves. So yes, I had these um, great things embedded into me, but I also had my own kind of demons that I had to overcome, which I ended up being able to do in my early 20s. Uh, So no, I never had this big vision, but I knew that I I did always have a sense that there was more for me and there was something here for me to do. And it wasn't until that I was, you know, in all honesty, lying on the floor in my bedroom with uh, um, a painful experience where I was kind of confronted with my own mortality that I then finally heard the voice in my head that says, honey, geez, you could have done anything with your life. And that's when I actually realized that it was more for me and that I had to then fight for it.
2: So many CEOs and leaders uh, feel quite isolated at times. And I presume mm-hmm. when you're in those uh, sort of darker times, you know, how what for you was that feeling like? You know, was it a real isolated, uh, constraining feeling? Um, and how did you kind of cope to get out of that?
0: It was super isolating uh, the first thing I did that night when I made the decision that I was this was not going to be how the story ended for me was that I actually got into communication Is I rang the person who I trusted and and opened up and then the next day I told the next person that I trusted and opened up and I suppose I went from uh, having um, things be very hidden to having things be more open and then that was the start of the journey but yeah I, I get what you're saying as well over the years of uh, continuing to sort of push the envelope entrepreneurially and with what I'm out to sort of create and cause in the world yeah there's been it feels like at every new phase there's different sort of levels of aloneness even when there's different big levels of breaking through and huge results there's uh, always the other side that can come with it too. And I think part of it is knowing how to navigate that and understanding that it's also okay when that comes up.
2: So so from, you know, now that you're kind of experiencing as an entrepreneur and CEO that how do you cope with CEO loneliness? Um, you know, you talked about communication before, you know, for you, what are some strategies that help you overcome those times where you're not sure who you can talk to about the things that are going on or, you feel that people may not understand.
0: Yeah, I have I have people on my I'd say team, and I say that and and you know quotation marks in the ear. My husband is someone that I can talk to and be the be such a rock there. I've got an incredible mentor, a an amazing guy who's uh, worked with Nessa and Reebok, and so he's the guy that you know once every two months we touch base to get clear on being on track or off track in terms of the vision. So it's, it's knowing who's on my team and actually using them. Um, and then I have a person which is called a listening partner, listening buddy. <laughs> so the listening buddy literally is someone I pay for. I pay them just to listen to every so often if I just need to blurt out a whole lot of stuff. And I need someone to hear it that's not going to make it mean anything because what I realize is that bottling stuff up isn't useful. And, but also on the same respect, is that telling everyone everything is also not useful. Mm -hmm. So I've got someone employed in the position that they're my listening buddy, they're highly confidential, I get to blurt it all out, I get to um, get it out, and then they get to recreate it into something that's uh, a bit more higher level than what the little poor me in that moment is wanting to blurt out.
2: (laughs) So talking about paying people, what was your first ever paid job
0: yeah, on the orchard. Uh, on the orchard is, I think, where I got my legs in showing up and working hard. Uh, so you know, and right throughout also my intermediate and high school years, I was always um, there. Was one point where I would purchase young calves and grow them, grow them up, and fatten them up and send them off. Um, I was you know having raising, breeding piglets and sending them off. Um, and had fruit and vegetable stalls out on the road. So I think the entrepreneurial part really started really young. I remember in that year that I was said earlier about when mum and dad sort of lost every, or could have lost everything, uh, I remember that year, the show, I don't know, do you remember the yeah. A&P show in New Zealand? Yes. <laughs> yeah, the A&P show came to, came to town. I really wanted to go to it. It was like $10 entry fee, which mum and dad couldn't afford. Luckily, I had my own stuff going on, so I paid $10 to go. I went on my own. I don't know if that's a sad thing or not. But anyway, I went on my own. And when I was there, I didn't have money for the rides. But I remember looking down on the ground and I saw tickets on the ground for the rides. And I was like, oh. So I picked them up. And it was interesting. And this part has always stayed with me. As I looked at the tickets, I thought, well, I could go on a ride. I wonder if I could sell them. (laughs) So I sidled over to where the ticket line was and I thought, well, these people are wanting to buy tickets. What if I sell them for 50% off? So I went and hopped these tickets off for 50% off and the first person, of course they said yes because they want tickets. I was like, damn. (laughs) So I spent the rest of the day looking for tickets on the ground and selling them to people in the line for 50% off. And I came home with $87 in my pocket. Oh, and I remember just hilarious. thinking, oh my God, there's so much money to be made. Like there's so much opportunity around us that if we just open our eyes and sort of train ourselves to look and see the opportunity that, that is around us, that it's everywhere. So of course I went back for the next two days and made more money at the show. <laughs> um, but I think that, that sort of that feeling of knowing that, We can create so much and we don't have to have this idea that it's not possible, it can't be done, or this idea of I feel stuck. I think whenever we get the idea of I feel stuck, we're just not seeing the bigger picture and we're not seeing the opportunities that are around us. And so I'd say that's probably one of the key things that I've taken through into being able to produce what I do produce today is a lot of it is that sort of Kiwi number eight wire mentality of just making it work, seeing the vision, seeing what's possible, and then going all in and just figuring it out. Anytime an obstacle comes up, it's an opportunity just to grow bigger or be more creative or resourceful or look at things from a new perspective. And then we can always, there's always some way through it or some way around it. Mm.
2: just uh you know interesting you uh, went into a career in the world of nursing and nurse education Mm -hmm. you've obviously had a lot a deep sense of care empathy and compassion how did that sort of shine through when you were struggling in in your teenage years and into your early 20s to actually sort of really uh sort of grow and sort of come alive as a as a nurse
0: hmm What a great question. You ask questions that I've never been asked before. So thanks, Craig. (laughs) Um, You know, in all honesty, I flipped a coin to do my nursing degree. Uh, It was, I got heads or tails and that was nursing, but it ended up being something that I absolutely loved and adored. I loved nursing. Um, I loved the patient care. I loved the patient contact. What I didn't like was when I, I remember one day I was on the ward and, uh, I'd finished all my patient care for the day, for for that moment, and asked all the other nurses. Every no one else needed a a hand with anything, so I took five minutes to ring a um, real estate agent because I was doing a property transaction at that time. And the nursing manager came in and, and basically went off at me. And I remember just thinking to myself, I'm okay. It doesn't work for me to be employed by someone. I know that for a fact. And so I sort of made a decision today to start exiting myself out at one point. But after that, I went from working in patient care to actually nurse education. And I loved that because the particular team I worked with was an innovative, forward-thinking environment. And I went in there, I'd say the least experienced, but well, for sure the least experienced. I think they I talked my way into the job, that's for sure. Um, and... But just with that tenacity, I was able to work my way up in that position and then bid and get big national contracts, which ended up getting a lot of national attention. But what got me there was not the actual skills that I had when I first got the job. It was just the tenacious spirit of figuring stuff out, the Kiwi number eight wire. And and through that process, I even remember a decision point that I came up against for myself was – I would be teaching in front of large groups. I remember walking um, and teaching in front of 200 registered nurses. And there was this crossroads decision of there's a way that I think I'm supposed to teach. And then there's what I feel is going to make the difference. And I would look at the other educators on the, the education day and I thought they were boring. You know, with all due respect, they were kind of, more regurgitating um, knowledge and talking at a, very, at a very clinical level. And of course, that was important, the clinical knowledge. But I think what I've learned is that what changes people is not just clinical knowledge or just knowledge. It's 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 impacting our hearts. You know, if we want people to do something at any level within any organizations, if we're just speaking in the level of knowledge, then people aren't moved to want to get wholeheartedly involved. And so I remember that was a real crossroads for me because I was relatively young. And uh, I remember speaking clinically and then just seeing that the group wasn't engaged. There was 200 nurses that were yawning and I was thinking, this isn't working. And I know there's another way. And so I started to, and it felt so risky, but I think riskiness You know, it's always going to feel risky if we take something to a new level. And that's part of the entrepreneurial journey is to see a new future, but be willing to frickin back yourself, even when there's not a carved out path for that. So I started doing these education sessions in a different way. And it felt like I was jumping off the cliff, but damn it, it started working. Um, And actual feedback was that people loved the sessions, but I could see that I could see when I was looking in the audience, like I was having full engagement. People started to say that they love the sessions. And that's actually how I got these national contracts is because I started doing things differently. And then when I did these big national contracts, it was, you know, I got a name for doing things differently. But this also came from a massive smack in the face. I totally screwed up a session that I did to a group of anesthetists where I totally missed the point. And I came out of the session that I had delivered to a group of anesthetists crying my eyes out in the corridor and then went to my office crying because I'd missed something major. But that, and I think this is my point of the obstacles, these obstacles we come up against provide us an opportunity to really fall forward. That was such a painful experience of what I did to these poor bloody anaesthetists. But then I had to look at myself in the office when I was crying and think, what did I miss what did I do that completely missed a point, and what do I need to do differently going forward? And that became a new level of inquiry for what do I stand for with my teaching? How do I actually affect the hearts, not just the minds of the people that I'm teaching? So um, I guess if I kind of create a summary, summary statement out of all of that, is that we, in any level of organisations or positions of leadership, come up against crossroads for ourselves that we have to ask ourselves deeper questions about what do we stand for and are we here to carve new territory or are we here as just to regurgitate more stuff? And that's really at the heart of leadership because leadership exists to alter the future.
2: Oh, I like that. I like Mm. that. And I know, you know, I've been in that same position as you where we've totally missed something and we're regurgitating something when we're first starting (laughs) out. Why do you think so many people play it safe?
0: because it's so scary not to. It is absolutely terrifying, and it doesn't matter how many times you take the big next leap. Every time you go to take the big next leap at your big next level, it's the same level of fear comes up. And fundamentally, we're wired, if we actually even look at the neuropsychology of it and the way in which we're wired – we're wired to stay where it feels safe and so our body sends off alarm systems the amygdala goes into fight and flight mode and sends us messages don't do this and it's actually interesting studying neuropsychology what happens is when our amygdala basically sets the alarm system in the brain sends off these alarms we have a whole lot of hormones being dumped into the body which basically kick the whole alarm system off. But also what happens is that the part of the brain that narrates for us, we actually have a part of the brain that's the narrator, that little part of the brain that from morning to night is um, telling us stories about what's happening. So that's the part that we identify as ourselves, but it's actually just a part of the brain that's triggering off. We could go down a rabbit hole with that, but I'm not going to. (laughs) But here's the thing. When the alarm systems go off in our body, this narrator part starts making meaning of what's happening and it starts telling us things. Now that narrator is not necessarily accurate at all and it tells us stories that will keep us safe. And the issue becomes not the narrator because it's just part of the human design. The issue becomes that we believe these stories And then we take action or don't take action at the level of whatever we believe those stories to be.
2: Yeah. I think, uh, I think I've read that more than 80% of the stories that ruminate inside our head will never ever come true. Um, could even be higher. Yeah. So how can people step out of that mindset then?
0: Yeah. Having the more we can have a deeper understanding of ourselves. And I guess, ourselves as how we are fundamentally wired as humans, that's more of a generic kind of thing, but also ourselves in terms of how we are personally wired. So for example, my personal wiring, if we were to call the fundamental decision that I made about myself as a little girl in the moment that my core wiring was getting laid down, which you know typically happens between the ages of three to five, and then it gets reinforced by by significant experiences, which actually aren't that significant, but they occur as significant in the moment. My core wiring is, I've done something wrong. Right, so whenever I go to step into a new level, guess what gets activated? I've done something wrong. Oh my gosh, I've done something wrong. And it doesn't feel like a little activation loop. It actually feels like the truth and my alarm systems are going off. Um, And then the stories in my head, this narrator part of the brain, right? Neuroscientists have actually located the part of the brain that is responsible for this narration. So the narrator kicks into overdrive and starts looking now, honing in in my environment for where I've done stuff wrong. And it will look for evidence. So we then scan our environment for, I will scan my environment for evidence of I've done stuff wrong. And blow me down, I'll find it. Mm -hmm. So then I'll find it and then that proves to me that I've done something wrong and that this is going to – and then I start predicting the future and I start showing myself little movies in my head of what's going to go wrong. So in answer to your question, it's understanding ourselves in a deep way because we can't cut that part of our neurology out. But we can have such a deep understanding of it that we become less and less hypnotized by it when it comes up and we can have a deeper understanding for ourselves because there is a lot of people for example who do play at a big level and they may not have that level of understanding and for some and they've got a deeper belief system of um, that would have them show up and take the actions anyway and push forward anyway but when this alarm system is going off in the background it puts such fear through the body, and through the mind that often if gone unchecked, people will use things like drugs or alcohol at night time, just a bottle of wine to suppress that alarm system, because it's so uncomfortable to be with. Mm. So
2: we're touching there, uh, you know, we're talking there a lot around, you know, preconditioning of our beliefs, um, which, you know, as you talk about most of it is done between the ages of three and six, and then pretty Mm much 95% are set in stone by the age of 12. What are some mm-hmm. strategies that people can use to unlock those limiting beliefs and either manage them or create new beliefs?
0: Yeah. Um, when you ask that question, it's really interesting because I've done so much NLP study and I've learned so many tools. But I guess, um, do you mind if I throw a curveball answer that's possibly not the one that you're wanting? Go for it. Um, and as I say this, I want to quantify that this is on like, you know, a decade of study of NLP and of ontological leadership and of of, of a deep understanding of a lot of modalities. I guess one of the key things that I've learned is that you can't escape your humanity. And that has been, I would say, the most significant breakthrough for me is that fundamentally I have gotten on a deep level that it is okay to feel scared at times. And I, there is no way in which I have to try and fix that or have it go away before I can take the action. And for me, that has been the tool, let's say, that has made the difference because I, I think without that, we are, we are seeing ourselves or we're relating to ourselves as a problem that needs to be fixed. And therefore, our focus goes on fixing the problem first, whereas I kind of just want to go ahead and take the action. I want to go ahead and take the action, cut myself some slack for being a bloody human being, throw myself a bone every so often with compassion and care and kindness and maybe, you know, an extra Netflix movie every so often if I want to chill out a little. But actually take the action because that the stuff in my head doesn't actually mean anything. It's certainly not the truth. Um, the feelings that get activated in my chest, they're no reflection of what's ac- actually going on. So I can be kind and caring of myself, but God damn it, I'm going to go and do the things that I'm here to do.
2: Mm, so following on from that, like I love the answer. Like it, it, it's uh, kind of what I was expecting from you. So I love it, which is good. <laughs> um, before you can influence others, you first must be able to influence yourself. So how can mm. we create that room to own around space own our own space when we've got these stories and we've got this talk inside our head
0: Mm. it's a great question i would say it's something that when you get committed to being the kind of leader that you want to be in your lifetime then you're available for showing up for what that's going to take on a daily basis but it's got to come from a commitment and a decision of who you actually want to know yourself as and i'm going to talk about that in all aspects of our lives and i think it comes down to because for me leadership exists wherever we show up it's not just about being in a boardroom or being on a stage or being in front of people it's Who do I want to know myself as? And when I do switch on that leadership, then it alters the trajectory of where we're heading so that we're not just heading to the predictable future within businesses, organisations, but also within relationships, also within marriages. Like if, you know, there is a predictableness to where we're heading, you know, for whoever's listening to this podcast right now, just you know even reflect for yourself. If you look at your relationship or your marriage or your company on any level, There is a predictableness that if nothing changes, we could almost predict where we're going to be in a year's time or five years' time if nothing changes. That's the likely future of your business. It's the likely future of the company. It's a likely future of your relationship. And in fact, if nothing changes, it's probably going to decline, but we can kind of safely predict where it's going to go. Now, here's the thing. Leadership is the very thing that when we step into it, it's the thing that, alters the trajectory of that to come to a creative future so let's look at that in marriage or in relationships um this is what Henadi and i this is my husband of 17 years what we've taken on within our own relationship is leadership and it's not usually the term that we would apply to relationships we usually Mm -hmm. think of it as board kind of stuff but you know if leadership was not present within our relationship the predictableness is that at best we would have a very disconnected shut down relationship where we weren't getting each other and the most likelyness was probably would be separated. Mm. Because of who we were with our own conditioning growing up, my dad with the abusiveness that he had and his struggles, I was very reactive to men. My husband had the equal and opposite experience with his mum. He was very reactive to women. So our conditioning when we came into each other's lives was to be a reaction to each other. And it wasn't us at our core that was in relationship. It was our stories that were in relationship and butting up against each other. So we had to, over the years, and it wasn't an immediate switch. It was over the years, and this comes down to the very first thing I said in answer to your question, which is commitment. It was a deep-rooted commitment of who do we want to know ourselves as in our lifetime? Are we just going to play out of the stories that were given to us, inherited? Or do we take those stories, what we inherited, and do we use them as like our own hero and heroine's journey to overcome the obstacles that we were brought up against? Therefore, they become a part of the game for us. Right, We can see these obstacles as things that are terrible. Oh, we shouldn't have this. We shouldn't have this. We shouldn't be coming up against that stuff. Or what if we take those obstacles and we include them as a part of the game? Huh. Therefore, the leadership then goes squarely on me. Who do I want to know myself as in my lifetime? Therefore, who am I going to know myself as in this marriage? Am I going to know myself as a cynical, reactive woman who doesn't see possibility in her husband? who doesn't stand for something greater, How no, it's not what I want. It's not going to make me happy when I'm on my deathbed. In the same form, my husband. And so we have consistently over the last 17 years, recreated the future again and again and again and again of our marriage because leadership exists within us.
2: Mm-hmm. I love that because a lot of people define their future on their, by their past and so yes. it's, a, it's a great way to approach you know relationships and the way you lead different people whether it be as you say in the home or whether it's in the workplace or in other areas of society we talked uh, you know you're talking there around an, a leadership that is very adaptive in its sense do you mm. want to elaborate a little bit more on what adaptive leadership is and yes. why it's so important when we see people who label themselves as I'm this type of leader or I do this as a leader.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, And I'm going to do like an on-ramp to this conversation by setting up this little frame. Imagine everyone who's listening to this, imagine in your mind a circle. So in that circle, we're going to carve out a teeny little pie, piece of that pie. And we're going to say that that piece of the pie represents what you know. And we could say everything that you know, put it in that little piece of the pie. Got it. So now let's add another little teeny slither to the pie, and we're gonna call that piece of the pie what you don't know. And you might ask yourself, what goes in that? And you think, oh shit, you know, I don't know how to do heart surgery, I don't know how to speak Chinese, I don't know how to do this, I don't know how to do that. Great, so you put all of that in that piece of the pie. But then what you realize is that those two pieces of the pie, whether you know it or you don't know it, these are both areas that you know. You either know that you know something, or, that, or you know that you don't know something. Like, I am very clear that I do not know how to speak German. So if we look at the rest of the pie, this represents what we don't know that we don't know. And that is actually most of the pie. Now, when we want to go and make changes with something, like real changes, like, transfer, like breakthrough kind of changes, like from caterpillar to butterfly sort of thing, um, It exists within the realm of what we don't know we don't know. And a lot of times we're trying to do linear learning where we take what we know that we don't know and then we decide, hey, this is a thing that I'm going to learn and then we learn it and we put it into the know that we know piece of the puzzle. And so basically that little piece just gets bigger and bigger. Our knowledge base increases more and more. But the true access point that would actually do a quantum breakthrough in results, relationship-wise, company-wise, is in the area of what we don't know that we don't know. It's really in our blind spot. So adaptive leadership is really opening up that inner landscape for ourselves of who we're being and what we're seeing and what's possible from the inside to open up what's possible in the, in the visible world, the actions and the results. So if we think for a moment of this model, perception, action, result. Perception, action, result. Action and result is the tangibles, right? We we take this action and we get this level of result. Great. That's the visible world. However, what drives action is one step back. What drives action is our perception, our inner landscape, has certain actions either just be available to us or we can't even freaking see the option for taking this level of action. So, the perception in the background this is out in a landscape, this is the invisible world. So, adaptive leadership is about really opening up that's in a landscape for us and looking in the area of what we don't know that we don't know about who we're being, about what we're bringing about what is available to us or not available to us based on our perceptions, our beliefs, all of that. So a lot of times when we're trying to make changes in companies or in relationships, we're looking at trying to do almost like technical fixes and we're trying to still operate in the existing paradigms. Therefore, we're kind of like tweaking the dials a little bit, pulling a couple of levers that already exists, and we're getting little changes. Um, but particularly in organisations, if we really want big changes, a lot of times it's quite a complex problem. There's technical issues within there that need to be addressed with a technical fix. But there's usually a bigger conversation that goes on. And at that level of, of breakthrough requires a very adaptive leadership conversation where we're making some very background um, bigger shifts that then open up more actions and they just throw open the results. Mm. Hopefully that made
2: sense. No, it's great. I love that leadership aspect. Talking about leadership and sort of owning your own leadership here, mm-hmm. I love this quote of yours: "Don't try to make your genius fit into somebody else's sense of genius. Mm-hmm. So often we see people trying to live someone else's dream or someone else's perception of who you are. You
1: mm-hmm. know how
2: important is it for people, um, mm-hmm. no matter what type of leader you are with your leading, a small group or a family or or a big company to establish your own why and believe in your own uniqueness?
0: Yeah, I think when you really, really dial in to all of those things that you just said for yourself, you've got a constant renewable well to draw from. And it's versus trying to look out into the world and think, Am I supposed to be doing like this? Am I supposed to be doing like that? That is like a never-ending quest that kind of never gets resolved. And I've I've done that as well. Uh, I really believe that we each came through with um, perspectives and gifts and talents and experiences that that shape us in the ways that we need for the journey that we are called for. And when we think, oh, yeah, but no, I'm not supposed to be like this. I'm not supposed to be this version of human, I'm supposed to be more like that version of human and we look out and we just miss out on our uniqueness. And I, that's definitely been my journey. I thought for so many years, I wasn't supposed to have that upbringing. I wasn't supposed to have gone through drug addiction. Oh my goodness, I wasted all those years, I wasn't supposed to. It wasn't until it actually smacked me in the face and I remember the moment that it did. that I thought, "Oh, what if I was supposed to go through that? wow what if i am supposed to have this kind of slightly rough at times personality and my unique way of languaging stuff and shit what if i was what if i was supposed to like stop trying to polish myself and be like sandra on stage or be like jenny and i trusted myself and then i so that was the start of actually dialing into myself and just really trusting what I see, trusting what I saw. And that's when everything started to take off. On one level, my energy freed up because I wasn't busily trying to be like someone other than myself. But on on the other level is that I actually was seeing stuff that needed to be addressed, the ideas that I was having where I was looking out into the world and thinking to myself, wow, wow. Why, why isn't this happening in the world and then instead of just thinking well i'm too little to provide it i started thinking maybe i'm seeing this because there's something that i need to provide here and so i stepped up and trusted that and started following where that path took me and it continued to open doors that were super unexpected that i couldn't have accessed if i had of had the idea in my head that said wow wouldn't that be amazing or why is this not provided in the world? And then thought to myself, well, no, I can't provide it because I'm not like Sandra.
2: Yes. And talking about stepping up and being unique, (laughs) you developed She Conference and the She Conference is, is a huge, massive event that is empowering people um, to take hold of their life. So tell us more about what She Conference is going to be doing in the future and you know, why, what is the secret ingredient as to why it's been so successful?
0: Yeah. So she live in the next few years, it's going to be the thing that everyone knows about and women are going to be waiting on the edge of their seats as we go tickets live, because it's like, they'll be sold out in a day. We're going to have 5,000 women in a room. Um, yeah. She is amazing. What I love about it is that it's these kinds of conversations that are both strategic, but really real. So that women can come along and truly understand and get, not just on a theoretical level, but get in their cells that far out. I'm, me and my uniqueness is actually really needed in the world. And it, it's okay that I feel sometimes self-doubting or I maybe even get a little bit of anxiety at times. That means nothing about me. And what I love is that I'm hand-choosing big speakers for the stage at She who share my same ethos who have been extraordinarily successful, but also who are willing to be very honest about what the journey actually is, so that every woman in the room is in no doubt that the voices in their head that tell them that they're not good enough, it's it's just baloney. We all share it. So, you know, last year we had Lorna Jane, who has built a $600 million company, and she started off super grassroots. um, And I loved, because she was on stage, we were sitting there for an hour um, on the couch talking, and she told them about how nervous she was up in the green room. Mm. And it was such a moment for all the women because they were like, what? You are a business giant. And you felt nervous coming in here? And she said, yeah, I felt so scared. And she was, she was like, her, her fingers were trembling upstairs. But I love that about her because then everyone gets "Oh, Okay, so we, we don't get rid of that part of our humanity. And then we had another lady, Constance Hall, who is also really big and um, she talked about her experience with anxiety. Now these, these women are women that have created mammoth things and they've done it despite being human. And so then what does it say about us? So it says that we just really don't need to pay attention to the blah, blah in our head. We can actually just tap into where we feel called to make a difference or where we see an opportunity and we can just go through it knowing that as we step out, lock the door behind you and uh, yes, yeah, stuff's going to come up. But those moments, and this has been the theme through this whole conversation, when the obstacles come up, they'll just provide you an opportunity to grow bigger in who you're being. Because here's what I wanna, sort of want to finish by saying this, is that each new level that we step into is going to have its own challenges. And then if you face all your challenges at that level, then you get to elevate to the next level so every level when you have the breakthroughs, they just prepare you for the next level. So anyway, that's what she is. She is like a three-day um, where women really get that on a lot of levels. And what's what comes out of it is huge. The feedback on people, you know, people will reach out six months later and they will say, Kate, this is what has happened in the last six months. So I love it that it is um, it is not a pumped-up motivation experience that fizzles off in the weeks afterwards. It's quite a deep-rooted change and shifts. We're having big conversations. We've got a workshop in it. It's not blinking easy to have, um, but they go away with, I would say legs for the journey.
2: Yeah. Yep. So talking about layering it and taking it to that next level, you recently <clears throat> launched, um, just in December there, she leads a new future podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well done. Yes. And thank you. So it's, it's a podcast where, uh it's a solo podcast where you're speaking on really important topics that no one speaks about tell us a little bit more about what you've spoken on so far and where you want to take it into the future
0: yeah um i mean exactly what you said so she leads a new future i'm so proud of the, the levels of conversation that we're having and i know that it's hitting the mark because of the amount of feedback that is hitting the inbox with the episodes um so we're up to like episode 11. they are solo conversations and they are things that i don't always feel particularly comfortable talking about but i think it's really important that we talk about the realness of what sometimes happens along the journey and then how things can be dealt with in new ways so you know one of the episodes i actually talked about in the very early stage of our relationship you know we've been together for 17 years and i sort of shared a little bit about the background of us um, in the very early stage of the relationship, there was a moment one night where um, things got scary and intimidating at home. And I actually called the police and my husband. And I shared about that in an episode with Henadi's full encouragement because, you know, he has said so many times, like, I want you to share these stories because so many other relationships are dealing with aspects of this and it's just not not okay. Mm-hmm. So um, So I shared about the night that I called the police, the reason why I did it, the conversation that I had to have with myself leading up to that night um, in terms of being extremely clear of what I stood for and so I stood for having a family that thrived and I knew that I was non-negotiable on that and I would do it with or without anyone's support or coming on board but my preference was of course for him to join me there however um, that was up to him so I called the police Um, had to let go of the idea that this could have been the end of us Um, and that became the pivot point for us to move into a new space and he took it with both hands and thanked me afterwards and um, did everything he needed to do on his side to heal the stuff that he had brought through um, from his childhood. And now it's beautiful because these days he works with men, like men's men in New Zealand. He's just finished a five-day retreat with men who came out, we had an all black here and all black there. People who, <clears throat> men's men, who aren't going to relate to the yoga man bun, sort of a spiritual soft man. They need to work with someone who has been there and done that and who's willing to absolutely speak the truth but also stands for families and communities thriving as well. So um, that's the kind of conversations that I'm having on the podcast. Um, you know, Many, many like that, that and very different as well but they're, they're very open and frank.
2: Awesome. Awesome. I like Mm -hmm. it. And I like where you're hitting with it. We all know smart people have great answers, but Mm -hmm. the most successful people ask great questions. Mm -hmm. When was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: Hmm. Um, I did something for the first time two weeks ago when I did exotic pole dancing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was really fun
2: <laughs> should we should we can should we dive into that or, or should we just leave yeah. it at? That?
0: <laughs> no no, we can, we can totally do that um and here's the thing i know that and this is all inside of the stand right i know that there's certain al- these aspects to our power that are varied and What often happens is that we shut down parts of ourselves because we go, that part's not okay. Either I can't be powerful and I just have to be nice. Like, that is such the typical thing for so many women that I'm helping women to untangle. Or I can't be sexual I just have to be this. Or I can't be, you know, so there's all of these kind of rules that we have and then basically we shut down aspects of ourselves and we sort of live in one gear, either I'm the nice person or I'm a serious person or I'm the jokester, you know. These gears that we get stuck in very much limit ourselves. There's a um, NLP saying that the person with the most requisite variety either, i.e. the person that can go to the most amount of places is the person that has the more freedom and power. So over the last, I'd say, eight years, I've been on a committed mission to really notice what are the parts of myself that feel shut down, that feel like I I've, don't have access to. And then I go and create experiments in my life where I actually – play out certain things. And so I've, you know, fought. There was a couple of years where I knew that I couldn't get angry. I was always just the nice person that was, you know, basically pushover over and always smiled. So I was like, damn it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reclaim some kahunas here. So I actually had to create experiments for myself where I really um, untangled that. So what I'm talking about is it's not just personal development. It's not just theory. We're not just talking about strategies. It's actually going into your life and creating stuff. So anyway, that was part of the pole dancing as well. As I thought, <laughs> oh, I haven't, you know, really known myself as being for a long time very sensual, sexual, because I've just been in this sort of leadership, um, building the team, you know, very kind of productive mode. And I was like, hmm, what would be the opposite of that? Exotic pole dancing. All right, sign me up. <laughs> and I came home just feeling a lot more spunky.
2: <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> what,
0: is the,
2: what is the one question that you would love to solve?
0: Oh. <laughs> um, hmm. Craig, I don't know. You've, you've stumped me on that one. Um, what popped into my head was how to deal with a 12 year old boy. <laughs> I'm a mum, but <laughs> apart from that, uh, I think what do people really need? I've, am we lost our brother uh, four months ago. He died in a car crash, and I would say that the last four months has been the biggest process of inquiry for me that I've probably ever had, because um, I'm asking myself some deeper questions on what do I, what do, what really truly freaking matters to me? Um, given that I'm 38. Hopefully I'll be here, you know, for another 50 years. So I don't fully yet have the exact answer for it that I can articulate, Craig, but I'm feeling a new sense coming through that is less about what I'm driving forward and more about being uh, wanting to actually make more of a difference with families and communities because I really want to see us thriving at a family community level. And I see there's a lot of stuff I want to impact in New Zealand. And so I suppose I would love the answer to all of this stuff that I feel bubbling through. Um, And there's a part of me that gets a bit impatient with it, and I feel like um, God or universe is kind of being a little bit uh, of a holdout with actually telling me the exact answer. So I would love to know that now. But um, my sense is for myself at the moment, there's a kind of like a new gear to shift into that's less me intellectually driven and a bit more of going where I feel like I'm called to make a difference.
2: Mm. My condolences to you and your family. Um, It's always a challenging time when, when you lose someone in your family. Mm -mm. What is your definition of leading an extraordinary life?
0: (laughs) Um, Pole dancing. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think being willing to, not be living from the ideas and the rules and the structure that is going on around you. So whether that's family ideas, whether it's social ideas, um, all of this, there's so many rules and expectations about how we're supposed to do parenting and relationships and you know, be a woman or be a man in the world. And for me, living an extraordinary life is actually stepping back from that and realising that that's just a whole lot of other people's stuff. And it's usually just unexamined stuff. And to be able to um, yeah, connect into where you're personally being nudged and even challenge some of the stuff that we think is the truth for us I found if we challenge it, we find out for ourselves whether it's actually the truth for us or whether it's someone else's, Mm. um, that's without kind of going into topics, but yeah, I think being willing to truly live your own life and carve it out in the way that you want.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great insight. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you?
0: Yeah, um, well, I've actually got the recording. There's nothing for sale on it at all, but there is a recording of the one of the trainings I did on the main stage at SHE, and so you can get it by going to com forward slash training. Even if I do say it so myself, it's a bloody good one. It's 28 minutes, and it's really multi-layered. Um, I've had a lot of feedback that just it changes the game for people. So it's com forward slash training. Once again, it's free and there's nothing for sale on it. It's just, it's just so good. I want you to have it. Um, And then you can find me on any social medias at Kate Marie O'Brien.
2: Brilliant. All right. We'll put those in the show notes. Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, To start off with your openness and honesty and vulnerability around growing up in a world that wasn't so simple and there's a lot of resilience going on. Your parents were dealing with a number of challenges and from that, it gave you a great grounding around how you were going to approach life, and that it wasn't, you know, all about being easy and comfortable. It was about hard work and really pushing through and trying to find a different way to do things. You can feel the empathy and the curiosity and compassion when you're a nurse. Um, you know, it really shone through there. Where you've got, you know, from the outside, some people might think of you as a little bit brash and out there, but you actually have a very caring heart, and you. You can see why you are so success, successful as a, a nurse trainer. To then go into leadership, where we spoke about adaptive leadership. We spoke about people uh, sort of de- delving into their limiting beliefs and how, the, how it's so important to understand those. You don't have to change them, but it's around knowing that they're there and being uniquely you. Uh, And I can say, you know, listening throughout this whole conversation, you are definitely uniquely Kate Marie O'Brien and definitely no one else. And it's really beautiful to hear. Um, I know our listeners would have got a lot out of this conversation. I certainly have. And I look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. So, Kate, thank you very much for a beautiful, open and honest conversation today.
1: Oh,
0: I think it's Craig. I super appreciate it. I've got to say you won the award for the most interesting questions that have ever been asked. Thank you so much. And, and I love what you're doing here.
2: Today's active CEO performance tip is unique leadership. Are you prepared to be vulnerable and have the courage to truly live your purpose? Are you willing to go beyond what is comfortable to make a difference in the world? If yes, then it's time for you to stand up and live in an uncommon place. A place that no one else lives and a place that not many people are willing to go to. As a leader, it is important that you be absolutely, positively, uniquely you. You need to lead from your heart and a place that brings out your true passion, energy and drive. What is that space that you own? What are the skills What are your character that is uniquely you? People will see through it if you're trying to lead like someone else. So next time you walk into the office or into an environment where you are leading or into a relationship at home, lead with your unique leadership. Thank you for listening to a powerful conversation with Kate Marie O'Brien on episode 88 tenacious spirit of an entrepreneur on the Active CEO podcast. Do you know what helps you navigate the clutter, complexity and commotion on a daily basis that allows you to take a bird's eye view and see the big picture? It is a real challenge when you have your head down in the zone and a focus on the task at hand to truly understand where you're at and even sometimes clarify what the big picture really is. You have to know what naturally helps you to clear the mind and find the space to step outside your body and mind so you can focus on what is really important. If you find it difficult to find your own clarity and get a 360-degree view of the big picture, then Active CEO Coaching is for you. To find out more, then please contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of www.nrg2perform.com website, and I'll be able to provide you with the tools you need to be a high-performing leader. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong.
1: Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG2Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the nrg to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.